Do me a favor. Take a look around this morning. Take a good look. Don't, this, don't, this is not just a participation action, but look around. Pay attention. See who's here. See who's here. Oh, yeah, look at all these people here this morning. Now, 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 when you get done looking, I want you to raise your hand and include yourself and tell me how many, the number of people you found were perfect this morning. Go ahead and raise your hand. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Nobody. No perfect people. Oh, look at found Just one. We got one. The baby's in the house. They're perfect. I hate to say it, but they were born in sin and iniquity. I hate to say that. I had to bust a bubble. You know, it's so funny because sometimes, you know, we bring people to church, and some people who are not used to church come to church, and they are intimidated to come because they're surrounded a bunch of, around a bunch of perfect people, and, and you and I know we're not perfect. And somehow, we even get offended by perfect people in the church, but you and I know we're not perfect. I want you to know this morning that you're surrounded from the, from, the, from the pulpit to the pew with imperfect people this morning. If you're looking for an imperfect church, you found one. You found one. But what I love about our imperfections is that in his weakness I'm made strong, and in my imperfections I glorify his perfection because if I'm anything at all, if I'm anything at all, it's because of Christ this morning. And I honestly believe that one of the greatest distractions, we've been talking about being distracted, that one of the greatest distractions that we have in the struggle that we have in this room is the distraction of guilt, that we, we feel guilty about not living up to perfection or living up to righteous. How many folks are in the, in the house are righteous this morning? Now, I'm righteous not mine, but I'm righteous. And so I'm thankful for that. This morning we're going to look at Peter's response to being guilty. He has three challenges he has to work through. These things communicate his guilt. And then we'll look at Jesus' response. How did he respond to Peter and his denial and his guilt? And, and we can draw from that and say, Lord, teach me this morning. Because you and I both know that no matter how much you've been saved, no matter how much you've been forgiven, the Lord continues to tweak what you call sin, right? Right. I, I'm no longer killing people no more. I'm done with that. I'm over, I'm over that now. But now I move on to another stage of, of standard of righteousness and then another stage of standard and another standard. And what I realize is this, I'm always struggling with sin because the Lord's always raising the bar in Scott Brandon's life. I always look and say, man, Lord, I'm falling short of this standard. And he says, that's okay, come on up. And so what I find myself constantly working against is the guilt that distracts me from the relationship of God. Am I the only one? Am I the only one? Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your love first, for your love. Your love, God, that stretches across chasms too far and too wide for us to even conceive. Thank you, Lord, for a spirit that even when we feel so distant, Lord, you still are near to us. You still override, God, our feelings when our feelings are not subject to your word. I'm so thankful for that. 
And I pray, God, this morning that your word will speak to our heart and our life, God, that even the lies of the enemy, God, will not measure up in the light of your truth and that we'll walk out of here, God, following you with no inhibition, no impediments, God, no resistance, and no half heart or partial belief in any lie that the enemy has sold us. God, we want to follow you in whole, and we want to follow you in truth. And I pray, God, your word would illuminate our heart to understand how it's possible. Deal with his lies, deal with our problems, and show us the truth of your love and the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Turn with me to John chapter 21. We're not going to read the story this morning because it's kind of long, um, but I'll just kind of give you the summary of it all. John chapter 21 is where Peter has, uh, actually, John chapter 21 is a bit odd because it's out of sequence with some of the other uh, aspects of the gospel. But I believe that the reason why John the Apostle put that there was because it was the very last thing. It's the last thing he wanted you, to, wanted you to read. And what we see is this, is that as John is writing the last part of chapter 21, he says at the very end, he goes, if we were to write down everything that the Lord Jesus had done in his life, he says, I would imagine that all of the libraries and all the volumes of the world couldn't contain. Wow, that's, that's huge. And so if he says that, then right before that, he gives the story of Peter. I think he's trying to create emphasis as if to say, the last thing I want to tell you is this story about Peter the Apostle. And the, the story about Peter the Apostle, as you know, is simply this, is that, that uh, Jesus told Peter that he would deny him. And, Jesus, and Peter said, no, 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 I'm, I'll never deny you. I, I'll follow you no matter where you go. Both to prison and to death. Can I tell you that Peter only lived up one of those? Uh, actually, two of those, but not at the time. And so what we find is this, is that his heart was zealous before God. He loved God, but there was a time where he did deny him. And when he denied him, Peter didn't know how to deal with his rejection of God, with his denial of God. And what we find in John chapter 21 is how he copes, how he deals with it. Jesus shows up on the scene. Peter and six of the disciples, they're, they're out there fishing. Jesus shows up and says, do you have any fish? And they say, no. He does the classic Jesus thing, throw it on the other side, on the right side. They bring in 153, 153 fish, and there's a huge catch. And then Peter realizes it's Jesus because John says, it is the Lord, you know, and so he runs and he jumps into the water. He swims all the way to the shore. Jesus has fish already cooking, right? It's nice to come home when it's already cooking, amen? See, see, y'all need some marriage counseling. I heard you men right there say, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. So, so he hits the shore, and it's already cooking. It's already ready, and they're sitting down, and they're eating this breakfast that Jesus has made, and while they're eating, Jesus asks Peter, he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? And they ask him three different times, do you love me more than these? And, and each time as Simon replies, yes, you know that I love you, he says, first, you know, tend to my sheep, uh, 
feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and then feed my sheep. Those are his three responses. And then, after it's all said and done, he says, Peter, follow me. And so this is the story that we're going to break down today. But what I want you to see is that there are three, there's two responses I want to look at today. The first one is Peter's response, because I think that he exhibits three uh, changes in his life that maybe can help us to see if you and I are living a life distracted by guilt. Because sometimes that thing gets masqueraded as, as a, a feeling of worth or a problem with worth. But we want to look today and say, you know what, are we living a life that's distracted by guilt? We've talked about different forms of distractions, but this is one of the things that I know for sure that as Christians we deal with. And there's three changes he exhibits. It's a change in places, a change in purpose, and a change in people. Let's look at the first one this morning. In verse 1, he begins and he says that Jesus revealed himself at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this is another name for the Sea of Galilee. So what you see right off is that this is the place of Peter's life before he met Jesus. So what does Peter do? Peter, he sins, right? He denies Christ. And what's the place that he goes to? Back to the place that Jesus found him before he found Jesus. Have you ever been there before yourself? That when you mess up and you make mistakes, you go right back to the place where Jesus first found you. Peter knew this sea. He built his life around the sea and the life that surrounded it. It was a familiar place to him. It was a comfortable place for him. But probably most importantly, it was an obscure place for him. And it was a place that didn't remind him of the failure that he made when he was faced with Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, when distracted by guilt... Where does it send you physically? Where does it send you emotionally? What are the places that you go to when guilt settles into your life because you know you failed the master? You didn't live up to his, his asking, his standard, his rule, his righteousness, or really you didn't live up to his love that beckons you. Perhaps like Peter, you moved to places of obscurity, hidden from the people that knew us as disciples, hidden as someone who, um, uh, who was trying to get away, not just from people, but also public professions. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to, to both the prison and to death. And he said, I'll, I'll never forsake you, right? Have you ever told the Lord, Lord, I'll always love you. I'll always be devoted to you. I'll always have, you'll always have my heart. You'll always have my passions. You'll always have my time. You'll always have my attention. You'll, have you been there before? And then somehow along the way, we reprioritize, and he doesn't have those things. And then the guilt sets in. Because I, one of the reasons I, I know is, like I talked about a few weeks ago, there, there's times when we go to read our word, but we don't, we've not been living like we should. We've, we've kind of missed it, and it's really hard to pick up that word. It's really hard to pray. Why? Because we're distracted by the guilt that we carry. Perhaps most importantly for Peter, um, that this place of obscurity, it, it, it was hiding him from practices that revealed how superficial his relationship was at the time. You and I, we find places that conceal our lack of insincerity, our lack of sincerity to God in our relationship. We don't want other people to look into our life and realize, oh no, they're not living like they should. 
And so, like Peter, we find places to escape to. We're no longer in places that require us to pray. No longer in places that require us to worship or speak in a way that exhorts other people and gives insight to the depth of our relationship. No, no, we don't want people to hold us accountable because they no longer see the exemplification of the fruits of the Spirit. So we find places of obscurity because we don't want to be found out. Why are you there? Because you got some guilt in your life and you're distracted by it. And we could so easily go back to Christ, but there's this thing, there's this tension, there's this conflict. Or maybe it's not a place of obscurity. Maybe like Peter, it was a place of comfort for you. A place that you can escape, a place where you didn't have to deal with the conflict. You know, if you're, if you're the passive-aggressive type, you, you, you don't want to deal with the conflict. And when you make a mistake, you realize either I got to ask for forgiveness, or maybe you got to be the person that offers forgiveness. And when you escape to a place of comfort, you don't have to worry about dealing with those relationships and reconciling those relationships, whether that relationship is Christ or other people in your life. It's easy just to slip into places of, of, of comfort and forget about forgiving people or forget about asking the Lord for strength through your struggle or, or not even getting to a place where you, you have to surrender getting to a place that you don't have to sacrifice anymore. Anytime you find a place of comfort, the place of comfort is a place that releases us from our need of God. And this is what the dangerous part of is, is when we, when we mess up, the first thing we do is, can I find somewhere, something, some way that I don't feel judged? Can I find something that my mind and my emotions will not remind me of my mistake? And if I can find a place of obscurity, I can stay hidden. And if I can find a place of comfort, I won't feel condemned. I want to find a place that releases me from my need in Christ. But I can also tell you this, that a change in places is almost always, almost always a reflection in a change of purpose. Almost always a change in purpose. Oftentimes, we return to familiar places in life. And when we do, it brings with it familiar practices. And we see this in Peter's response as he tells the disciples in verse 3, I'm going fishing. And we've probably said that in our own way, different ways. But Peter says, I'm going fishing in verse 3. As we have already said, this, the sea was Peter's old life. It was also the place that said in Luke chapter 5, 10 through 11, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they what? Is it up there? They what? They left everything and followed him. Now, I don't know about you. I'm new to the Ozarks, but how I interpret from now on is, un, not, is until I die, or um, not until I die, or not until I get tired, or until you get distracted, from now on means from now on. It's indefinite, right? Luke uses the same phrase from now on to depict Jesus' place in heaven. He says in Luke twenty two sixty nine, 69, from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then Jesus says in Luke twenty two eighteen. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, which will happen at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So what we see is this, that Peter was to be a fisher of man from now on, for eternity, forever. And he was never supposed to go back because he couldn't go back because they left everything. So for Peter to go back, he had to go back and get the things that he left. He had to go find a boat. He had to go find an anchor. He had to go find uh, the nets. He had to go find the things that he gave away to Jesus. Did you hear me this morning? I'm teaching a story, but I'm trying to talk to you about your life. That oftentimes when we're distracted by guilt, what we do is we go back to the things that we gave God. Because those things we have comfort in. Those things we have confidence in. Those things we have identity in. But Jesus says, you're not that way no more. From now on, you're something new. From now on, you're transformed. From now on, you have a new life. And from now on, you are to not to meddle with those things. But somehow, you and I, we find ways to bring nets and boats and oars and people back into our life. The Lord said, no, I've not called you to be one who catches fish, but to catch men. You know what your purpose is in life when you answer the question, what's in my hands? What's in your hands? What are you doing? If I ask you the occupation of someone who held a gavel in their hand, you would probably say a judge. If I ask you the occupation of someone who held a painting brush in their hand, you might say a painter, right? There is a definition to what we do by what we hold in our hands. And my question to you today is simply this, is that if you're distracted by guilt and you're changing purposes in your life and you don't realize it, you might want to look and see of the things that are in your hand that you've been set free from, but somehow you've picked them back up again. What I love about this story is that although Peter tries to revert to his old practices and his own purposes, he fails to be successful. Because, the Lord, because it says in Scripture that they caught nothing. But look how Jesus addresses their catching of nothing. He walks out there and he says, children, he goes, do you have any fish? In verse 5, do you have any fish? Now, I love the fact that I know Jesus is omniscient, right? And he's asking these questions. And he knows they don't have any fish. And when you ask a fisherman who's been fishing all night, which is the prime time to be fishing, and then come the morning time, which is not really the best time to catch fish by the nets, what we find is simply this, is Jesus is a bit prodding it on. I think that Jesus is simply saying this because he's out there working in his strength. He's out there working in his former ways. He's out there working in his old self. I think Jesus is saying this. Have you been able to provide for yourself? Do you have any fish, Peter? How is working in your own strength going, Peter? What has your wisdom proved so far, Simon? How has this decision helped you provide what you think that you need? Do you have any fish? How are the practices outside of my purpose for you going? Mm, and I would ask you this morning, if you're distracted by guilt, are you fishing for things that you shouldn't? Are you looking for things that don't belong to you? And if so, do you have any fish this morning? How are the practices that don't fulfill your purpose doing? Can I say that again? I just want you to soak that into your, your heart and your soul. How are the practices that are outside your purposes, the things that God has called you to, 
How are, these, how are those things going for you? Are they providing for you? And the last change we, we identify in Peter was that in regards to both the people in and no longer in his life. And so Peter, distracted by guilt, exhibits not just change in places and not just change in his purpose, but now there's a change in the people also. In verse 3, six of the disciples respond to Peter's return to, to the former things of life. They'll say, hey, we'll go with you. I'm going fishing. Well, we're going to go with you. And on the surface, it seems as if Peter had the right people around him. I mean, these were disciples, right? They knew they had been taught like Peter had been taught. They were supposed to be meeting in Galilee. There's a problem. In Matthew 28, 10, he says, go and wait for me in Galilee. And they're not there. They're with Peter being disobedient as well. Should have been in Galilee waiting for Jesus, but they're not there. And so when I saw this, it, it, it gave me two conclusions here. The first thing that it led me to was simply this. When leading, let me emphasize, when leading, distracted by guilt, our denial diminishes others' devotions. When you're leading and you're distracted by guilt, then your denial diminishes others' devotions. The Peter of failure has challenged the devotion of six other disciples. They're supposed to be devoted and following Christ, but they're not in Galilee like they're supposed to be. They're out there on the boat following Peter. Can I ask you, have you noticed uh, that your guilt has lessened the devotion of people around you? Had they no longer followed Christ in, in a hot pursuit like they used to want to be because now they're around you and your denial, your rejection, and your guilt from not following Christ. I know I'm preaching hard this morning, but has it diminished other people's devotion around you? Can I just be, can I just be straight to the point this morning? Mom and dad, has your guilty distractions weakened the devotion of your children? Do they find reason to pray less, worship less, read less, give less, serve less, sacrifice less, surrender less, and be less devoted? Because they're looking at your life and they're realizing, you know what, being around mom and dad, they may not say this, but their actions exemplify the concept that as I'm being around mom and dad, I find myself being less devoted to Christ. Because mom and dad could be living distracted by guilt. Boss, does your distraction, does your distraction give reason for your workers to work less, be less patient, less giving, less on time, less faithful to their word? Neighbor, co-worker, student, does our guilty distractions weaken our neighbor's view of Christ? Does the fruit of the Spirit no longer create a hunger for them to know Christ because we are not walking in full relationship with God, we're walking distracted by guilt. Second conclusion would be this. When living distracted by guilt, our setting no longer seeks to serve. When we're living distracted by guilt, our setting no longer seeks to serve. We've removed ourselves from the place where the people are who need to be served. Peter's failure removed him from the setting where he used to serve. Where are the hungry in Peter's life? Where are the broken in Peter's life? Where are the sick in Peter's life? Where are the oppressed in Peter's life? I know where they're at. He removed them from his life because he didn't want to be faced 
with the challenge and the commandment that the Lord gave him to serve and to cause others to be more significant than him. And so Peter removes himself from the place to serve because you probably weren't serving before you met Christ. You were serving yourself, but you weren't serving others. And our tendency when we're living a life that's distracted by guilt is to remove anything and everything that would remind us of the one we disappointed. And so we find ourselves in places that we don't want to serve. Guilt has a way of distancing, distancing us from the people we once um, ought to serve. It, David, King David, went to the, the extreme on this. Um, you know, at one point in time, Uriah was one of his 50 mighty men. And his guilt, his sin was so great that he didn't just remove him out of his life. He murdered him. And so if I were to draw out for us a principle out of Peter's life in response to his failure as a whole, I would say this, when distracted, when distracted by our guilt, we seek solace in the superficial to silence the sting of sin. What does that mean, Pastor Scott? That means uh, that we are looking for the meaningless things in our life, places that help you forget the new way of living, Actions that keep you from fulfilling your purpose and people that don't require you to lead and settings that don't require you to serve just so we can escape away from the memory of our mistakes. We seek solace in the superficial to silence the sting of sin. But here's Jesus' response. That's Peter's response. You and I, we may, we may be there. We may understand that this is some things that are kind of close to home, Pastor Scott. I don't hear y'all amen to me this morning. That's okay. Because let me tell you, I, I've always told you this. Don't think I'm preaching at you. I'm always preaching to myself. You're just here to listen. Don't think I don't understand what this means and the implications of it. Don't think I don't know what this feels like. Don't think, I, I, there's multiple times I just had to stop write my sermon and just cry and just cry because I realized, man, I'm messing it up, Lord. I don't want to be distracted by guilt. I don't want to live a life that diminishes the devotion of the people around me. I don't want to put myself outside of a setting where I'm no longer serving anymore. Don't, don't let me be distracted, Lord. Don't let me find solace in the superficial things of life so I can numb the sting of sin in my life. I'm telling you, those are the things that we find ourselves going through. Be sensitive to the word of God this morning. But I got some hope for you. Here's what Jesus' response. First, notice this. Jesus came looking for them. Aren't you thankful that it's not you that says, where is he at? I got, to find, I got some stuff I got to clear up. I got to fill up with the Lord. The Lord says, no, where are you? Where are you? Like the Lord told Adam and Eve in the garden who sinned and hid themselves. He says, mm, where are you? I'm so thankful that the Lord is looking for me and finding for me. Jesus has come to look for Scott Brandon. But Jesus didn't just come looking for Peter. He helped them in the place of their frustration. They're out there trying to provide for themselves, and he's even merciful and as gracious as he is. They're not supposed to be fishing, but the Lord shows up and sees them in their pity and says, cast it to the other side. What I find this is that Jesus helped them bring in the fish. But what I find more impressive 
is that Jesus had already been spending time building a fire, catching fish, cooking fish, and now is ready for the disciples to come be with him. Can I tell you, even when you feel like Jesus is not near, even when you feel like you're distanced from him and you think, why in the world would he receive me back again? The Lord is preparing for your return. He's not just, oh, you decided to, to call on my name. The Lord has always been preparing for you. Always. He's never lost sight of you. He's never forgotten about you. There's nothing you have done, nor can you ever do, that would cause him to unthink his thoughts towards you. That he is a good and great and merciful and long-suffering and steadfast in love kind of God. That I would challenge you, I would challenge you to find if he can be tested beyond reason. Because I guarantee you that no matter what sin that you find yourself in, no matter what addiction you see yourself in, the Lord can break it, restore, redeem, and use your life to proclaim to a world that He is a loving God, that He is a faithful God. Jesus said to them the same thing He would say to us. And can I tell you, as a big man, come and have breakfast are good words. Jesus knows how to speak my language. Come, Scott, and have breakfast. Well, I'm there, Jesus. I'm there. It may not jump off the page to you, but at this moment, Peter's, Peter cherishes in his heart this moment. It's a breakfast that is huge. In fact, he reflects back on how it, made him, how it made him feel. He felt loved. He felt accepted. He felt special. He felt chosen. Because don't you know that when he denied Jesus, he didn't feel any of those things anymore? And the crazy thing is, is that when we mess up in our relationship with the Lord, we feel like, what does he have to do with us? Why would he bring us back? Why would he restore us? And we no longer feel chosen. We no longer feel special. We no, we no longer feel loved. But look how Peter reflects back on this. Acts chapter 10, verse 39 and 41. He, it, he, he, he's at the house of Cornelius. He's presenting the gospel. And he reflects, he reflects back on this moment. And he says this in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as a witness who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Ah, in, in, in my mind's eye, I see Peter realizing he didn't give up. He still thinks I'm special. There's still a place in my heart and there's still a place in his heart for me. And so what I see as Peter, Peter is reading this. I see a belonging in his heart as he states it. And Peter discovers something for you and me in relation to our guilt. And that is simply this. Peter discovers that our rejection doesn't rewrite his resolve. Our rejection doesn't rewrite his resolve. That no matter what I do, I don't change his mind. 
No matter what I do, I don't make him contemplate something else. No matter what I do, he still has his thoughts and his plans for Scott Brandon. There's nothing that I can do for that. And, and, and is there not a joy in your heart to know that you cannot rewrite the resolve of God, that he will find you, he will pursue you, he will prepare for you, and he will restore you. And this is the resolve for Peter. What is the resolve for the church? Romans 5, 8 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. First John says, In this is love. Not that we have loved um, uh, God, but God has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for sins. Ephesians 2, 4-5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because I know he's got to be rich to cover my stuff, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And my favorite one is this. Psalms 103 says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, and so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him as Far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove my transgressions from me as a father shows compassion to his children. I don't know about you, but some fatherless people, I don't know what a compassion of a father is. And so when I see Jesus forgiving me and casting my sins as far as the east is from the west, I know what a father is like. He doesn't deal with me the way I should be dealt with. The way I would deal with other people. If they transgressed against me. And this is the Jesus I'm talking about who does not allow his resolve to be rewritten by your rejection of him. He is as firm as the mountain. He is as, as, as faithful as the ocean. And so Jesus uses Simon Peter to tell us of his resolve in loving him. But he also uses Simon Peter to demonstrate how steadfast his purposes are. Do you love me more than these? Is the question that he asked, verse 15 through 17. And he says, if you do, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Interesting enough, on a side note, is that every time the Lord says, do you love me, the first two times he says, do you agapeo? Do you agape love me? Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me above anything and everything? Which is the love that Peter first pledged. And when Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you, he doesn't use the same Greek word. He uses that phileo type of word. So Jesus says, do you love me above everything? And Peter says, you know I love you like a friend. Hmm. And then the third time, Jesus says, well, Peter, do you love me like a friend? And then Peter says, Lord, you know all things. In my heart, I see Peter even then realizing the shame to tell the Lord, Lord, I love you. And, 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 and as he said it the third time, I begin to wonder in my heart, in my own mind, even when we receive the love of God, there's still a doubt in us. I know you love me, God. You, 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 you love me. You, you have to love me. It doesn't mean that I'm worth loving. It, it doesn't mean that I really have merit with you. But you love me because you have to. 
And can I, just, can I just rewrite some lies in your head this morning? The Lord doesn't have to do anything. The Lord longs for you. I mean, the Lord loves you. And the only reason why you don't allow him to love you is because you don't love you. And how in the world could your creator love you more than you love yourself? And you are the very thing that, that does not allow him to restore you and redeem you because you're still judging yourself. You're still hating yourself. Peter is in the place of life where he can't even respond to Jesus' love. But here's the great thing, that even though he's still struggling, and even though Peter doesn't see his purpose in life, what I want you to know is this, is that Jesus hasn't lost sight of Peter's purpose. He still wants him to be a fisher of men. He still wants him to build the church. He still wants to receive the promise of the Father and be a witness for him. And he still wants him to feed his sheep. And even though Peter, distracted by guilt, returns to his former place, purpose in life, Jesus shows us through the life of Peter this one thing, that our past doesn't postpone his purposes. What has God called you to do today? What is your purpose in life? And can I tell you that nothing in your past can negate God's purposes for you. You say, oh, Pastor Scott, you don't, you don't understand. Oh, okay, well, let me ask you some questions then. Have you murdered someone in your heart? With your words? Did your, did your murder lead to your hands? Did you actually murder someone, kill someone, and then try to cover it up so you could appear righteous? Because if so, you might be like Moses. But God still had a plan and a purpose for Moses. He has a plan for you. But maybe you say, wait, Pastor Scott, I've been unfaithful to my spouse. And I've had lies in my life to cover the tracks. I've been exposed and left in a state of shame and guilt. And if so, you might be like David. But David didn't postpone, David's actions didn't postpone God's purpose for him either. Neither does your past postpone God's purpose. Do you struggle with repeated sin? Do you struggle with constantly putting yourself in places of temptation and then giving in to those temptations? Because if so, you might be like Samson. And I love God's faithfulness to Samson in spite of his, addiction, of his addictions. It says in Judges 16, 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. It may take a little time. It may take a little while for you to get there. But I want you to know that regardless of how long it takes you to get to the place for God to use you again, your God is preparing the fish, preparing the fire, preparing the breakfast, and waiting for your hair to grow again. You still got a purpose in his life. Your past doesn't postpone his purposes. Have you turned to a life of physical, emotional, or spiritual prostitution? Selling yourself to provide for yourself. So did Rahab the prostitute. She traded her identity and her integrity for the hope of popularity, provision, and promise. But can I tell you that regardless of Rahab's past, she was included in the lineage of Christ. And that lineage of Christ was planned and ordained and revealed the way God always meant it to be. Think for a second that God actually factored in her past to communicate the inclusiveness of his plans. God already knows your past. 
God knows already where you messed up and how you're going to mess up again. And he's already factoring those things into his sovereign plan because he still has a purpose for you. And have you treated people unfairly? Have you torn families apart? Have you caused division? Have you destroyed churches? Have you sent people to their death emotionally or physically? Because if you have, then you might be like the chief of sinners who has caused many a problem. Paul the apostle, through his pride and zeal, through his desolation of churches, I believe that he penned this when he, uh, he had these things on his heart when he penned this scripture. I've never read this before, but when I realized from the, Paul, from the perspective of Paul, he says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And when I think about this, we always think about how to explain the bad things that are happening to us. But let me ask you, when you're a Paul and you've realized you've ripped families apart, you've caused division, and you've destroyed churches, and you've sent people to their death, how does that pin when you have that on your mind? And he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work. That means all the things that I did wrong work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Can I tell you that the Lord can use everything that you did wrong for his good. In fact, I, and there's a part in the movie of Jesus Revolution I love. It's, it's, my, it's my favorite, uh, favorite little um, uh, sentence there. And she says, she goes, don't be so prideful that the Lord can't work through your failures. And can I tell you people, to say that he is limited by our, our past, to say that he is limited by our failures, is to say that your God is able to be limited. And he is not that way. The last thing we need to ask is simply this, as the worship team comes. The question we're all asking is, is, is how do then we overcome the distraction of guilt? that seeks to rewrite the resolve of his love and, and, and postpones the purposes for his life. How do we overcome those things? In verse 19, it's very clear. He says this, and the same goes for you and me as he tells Peter. The last thing, really, I, I think this is where John wanted to end the, all of Scripture that he wrote in his book, but he, he says these last two words. He just says, follow me. Follow me. The real question today is not how we can overcome the distraction of guilt. It's not if we're still accepted by the Father. It's not if God still has a plan, a purpose for our life. The real question today is this. Will you let failing him keep you from following him? That's the question that you and I have to answer. Will you let failing him keep you from following him? As the worship team gets ready, will you stand with me this morning? I want, to, I want to speak to three different things. In fact, if I could just have the prayer team come on down front. I want to speak to three different things this morning. I think we all could be in the same bucket, same boat when it comes to... Have we failed Christ before? Absolutely. If you've not failed Christ, I'm going to worship you before you leave. But we've all failed Christ. We've all messed up. We've all missed it. And in that process, what we find are three difficulties that we struggle with. First is that we struggle 
we're forgiving ourselves. And we struggle asking God for forgiveness. And so we don't go back to him because the shame of what we've done feels so great that we, we, we want to get back to him. But we don't ask for forgiveness for fear of this, that it's one more time we have to ask for forgiveness. It's just one more time. God, I've done this a thousand times. Now it's a thousand and one. And I don't want to ask for forgiveness, Lord, because it feels empty. But can I tell you, that is not how Jesus sees it. The second thing that he wants to deal with in our life, he wants to deal with our inability to surrender. He has, he has a, a, a desire and a plan for us. But, he, but unless we surrender our life to him, which means we have to surrender our people, we have to surrender our, our, our problems, we have to surrender our pains. And if we don't surrender those things, then we're walking in a place that we're so distracted by guilt. We can't find freedom. We can't find forgiveness. And so we need forgiveness and we need surrender. And the last thing is simply this, is that we're struggling with disappointment. You know that you failed God. I know that I failed God. And to be honest with you, I don't want to go into his presence again because I'm disappointed that I'm not the person I want to be. Right? You know God will forgive you. You know you can surrender those things that he's asked for. But God, the truth of it simply is this. I've proclaimed you. I've proclaimed to you. I follow you both to prison and to death. But when it comes down to it, Lord, for me to ask you to forgive me and surrender, I'm just so disappointed in Scott Brandon. I don't even feel like I deserve to be forgiven. So the problem really is not you, God. The problem is simply me. I'm disappointed in me. And so this morning, I just want to ask you, are you struggling with disappointment in yourself? Forgiveness from the Lord because you've asked for forgiveness time and time and time and time again? Are you struggling with surrender? Because really you do love those boats and you love those anchors and you love those nets because they give you a place of comfort and obscurity and identity. Is that you this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't really have any more words to say to you guys. But I know the Holy Spirit does. Here's I wanted just to work out. I know sometimes the altar calls. It's that time when we don't want to respond, especially to a message like this. But what I find is, is that if we can walk in confidence, speak in boldness, restoration is always there for us. So this morning we want to pray for you. Or maybe you just want to come down and pray by yourself. That if you're struggling with surrendering, struggling with forgiving you're struggling with disappointment in your life as the worship team sings will you come down and allow us to pray with you and if you don't come down I need you to stay in your seat I need you to pray for those people who are going to make a change today if that's you would you come